Well, Antonio Salieri was an Italian composer in the 1700s and 1800s. Raise your hand if you have ever heard of Antonio Salieri. Oh, we have one. Good job, you me. Now raise your hands if you have heard of Mozart. Ah, a lot more. Now that right there was a problem for Salieri. Salieri became deeply envious of Mozart's talent and fame, at least according to, to Peter Schaffer's play Amadeus that was later turned into a movie in the, the 1980s. And now, now whether Schaffer's portrayal of the lives of Salieri and Mozart is entirely historically accurate is questionable. Uh, but indulge me for the purpose of this introduction. Tim Keller used this illustration in one of his books, so I think I can get away with it. Now, uh, according to Schaffer, and this is true, Salieri was a talented composer and had gained some level of fame. But then Mozart came along, and he began to overshadow and outshine Salieri. It was clear to Salieri that Mozart had far more musical talent than he did. Salieri was no slouch, but he could tell that Mozart had a gift. Uh, these things led Antonio Salieri to burn with envy. They also led him to grow angry and bitter towards God because, as a young man, and at least in Schaffer's play, Salieri had made a vow to God that he would live a righteous life, that he would live a morally upright life if God would only make him a great and famous composer. Now, this seemed to work for a while. Things seemed to be going according to plan, but then Mozart came along with his great talent. And the true injustice of it all in Salieri's mind was that Mozart was not a moral man. Again, don't know if that's historically true, but in his mind, Mozart was an immoral man. Well, this led Salieri to have a crisis of faith, to grow angry at God. How could God give an immoral man and a wicked man like Mozart such great talent? How could God allow him to enjoy more success than someone like him who had lived uprightly, who had even made this vow to God? Well, in the end, Salieri decides that if righteous living will not bring him success, he will just not bother to live righteously anymore. He abandons God, he abandons his morality, and in the end he poisons Mozart and kills him. In the church, though, this is a fictional story of Salieri's life. It has some truth in it. Uh, though is it a fictional story of Salieri's life? Maybe you can relate to his feelings of envy. It's probably not too hard for you to think of someone who has something that you want. Talent, money, good grades, the opportunity that you want, popularity, a spouse, kids, the list can go on and on. Uh, envy, envy comes easy. And maybe you can relate to Salieri's doubts and crisis of faith. Do you ever look around you and wonder why so many bad people, seemingly bad people, enjoy so much success? Why has God given them so much and me so little? When you see people gaining power and money through unethical behavior, whether that's lying, cheating, manipulation, the mistreatment of others, and those behaviors seem to get them ahead, do you wonder, is that just the price of success? 
Is that just the way the world works? If so, why should I bother being good? Is there any value in being righteous? Is it worth it at all to follow the Lord? Friends, if you can relate to any of those things, you are not alone. This is the struggle of the psalmist in Psalm 73. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 73 with me in your Bibles. You can also find the text to Psalm 73 printed in the back of your bulletin. Now, Psalm 73 was written by Asaph, who was likely one of the the Levites who served as a musician and a worship leader at the sanctuary during the reign of King David. Now, Asaph looked out on the world, uh, a world in which the arrogant and the wicked seemed to prosper, and it led Asaph to doubt God's goodness. It made him wonder whether following God was worth it at all. As we will see in this psalm, Asaph ultimately concluded that God is good and that following God is worth it. And his conclusion is the main idea of this sermon. God is good. Following God is worth it. That's the main idea. It's simple. God is good. Following God is worth it. And I have three points for the sermon today. The first is perception. Perception. That's going to be from verses 1 through 14. And ideas that our perception of the world around us can lead us to doubt. The second is reality. Verses 15 through 20. God has revealed the reality of the world and our situation. He corrects our perception. And then third, that brings us perspective. That'll be verses 21 through 28. Perspective. God's revelation gives us the proper perspective on the world around us. So first, perception, that'll be verses 1 through 14. Look with me at those verses in Psalm 73. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out (coughs) from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Brothers and sisters, those first three verses introduce us to Asaph's struggle. Asaph begins by confessing what he knows to be true, or at least what he has heard to be true, that God is indeed good to Israel. God is good to his people, to the pure in heart. But though Asaph knows this to be true intellectually, he's having trouble really believing it in his heart. He finds himself doubting whether it is really true that God is indeed good to his people. Asaph wonders, is it true that God is good? If it is true that God is good, 
Why are there so many wicked people who are successful and prosperous? Why are their lives, as opposed to my life, seemingly easy and carefree? So the, the prosperity of the wicked led Asaph to doubt God's goodness and to wonder whether it was worth it at all to follow after God. He said his feet almost slipped, that he almost went astray. He was tempted to abandon the Lord. And why? Because he found himself envious of those who did not follow after the Lord at all, the arrogant and the wicked around him. Their lives seemed to be better than his own. They had more stuff, an easier time, less suffering, more success. How then could God be good? A church, maybe this sounds familiar to many of you. How often have you heard it said that God loves you? How often have you heard these words from Romans 8, 28? For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But, but, though you have heard those things, when you look at the world around you, when you look at your own life, when you look at your circumstances, do you have trouble believing that those things are true? Church, it is not always easy to believe in our hearts what we have heard with our ears. It's not always, to true, it's not always easy to truly believe in our hearts what we have heard with our ears. And what we might even know in our minds is true. When you look at your own life in comparison with the lives of others, do you find yourself like Asaph, envying others? Have you ever looked around and wondered, if God is good and he loves me, why are so many people who do not fear God so successful while I struggle? Why are their lives better than my own? Why do they seem to be living the good life? It made you wonder, is God really good? Is his word true? Does he even exist? Brothers and sisters, that was Asaph's struggle. His perception of the world around him did not seem to match what he thought he knew to be true of God. Those two things did not seem to, be, to go together. What he knew about God, his perception of the world, they seemed incompatible. And verse, verses 3 through 14 really describe how Asaph perceived the world to be. And I think if we're honest, these verses describe how the world often appears to us as well. I look at verses 4 and 5. Asaph lamented the fact that the the lives of the wicked seem to be easy. They seem to be carefree. Maybe you wonder why they are married and you are not, why they have kids and you do not. Maybe you're not sure where your next meal will come from, but the bodies of the wicked are well fed. They have all they want. They can order Talabat whenever they feel like it. They do not seem to face trouble and affliction. Friends, this is often the appearance given by celebrities and social media influencers, is it not? I'm not trying to suggest that they are all, all wicked, but many in the celebrity culture and the, the social media culture, YouTube stars, Instagram celebrities, they try to show you their life of ease and comfort. They're trying to show you how great their life is. They make you want to envy their lifestyle, so you'll want to buy the products that they are promoting. I think it often works. We want to have lives like they have. We want to be like them. 
We think they have it made. But as we'll see, appearances can be deceiving. Kids and teenagers especially, don't be fooled into thinking what you see on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or whatever one of your favorite social media things are out there. Don't be fooled into thinking that is an accurate description of life or really that that is any picture of the good life at all. But I also think that to Christians, the life of the ungodly, lives of the wicked can appear to be easy because the wicked are not constrained by God's commands. They don't bother to follow his commands. The wicked seemingly get to do whatever they want without consequence. They seem to be free from the demands that the Lord makes on our life. And they do it without consequence. And so maybe you're tempted to wonder whether pursuing a life of holiness is really worth it. If they can sleep around or watch pornography, why can't I? If I'm just a little dishonest at work, a little unethical, a little ruthless, maybe I'll get ahead, you think. Why should I fight for holiness? Kids, maybe you envy your friends who seem to be able to to mistreat their parents and teachers without receiving any consequences. Why should I honor my parents or teachers, you wonder? Christians can be tempted to think that life would just be easier Life would just be better if I could act however I want. You can be tempted to envy the wicked. Well, Asaph's perception of the world is actually the same perception of the world that the wicked seem to have themselves. We see that in verses 6 through 9. The wicked who have lives free of trouble and affliction grow proud. They proudly display their, their pride like a, like a necklace that they, that they wear. They see their own success, and they conclude that they must be doing something right, and they want to parade it for all the world to see. That's their perception of the world. Church, I don't think that's just a problem for the wicked. I think that can be a problem for you and I as well. You and I as Christians can be tempted to grow proud and self-righteous when things are going well in our lives. We can be tempted to believe that we must be doing something right. If our lives are better than those around us, that's certainly because we are more faithful. We are more pleasing to God. So we can be quick to to judge those who are suffering, believing it must be their fault. Brothers and sisters, let Psalm 73 warn you away from that type of thinking. We will see appearances can be deceiving. Oh, we see in verses 8 through nine, eight and 9 that in their pride, the ungodly mistreat those around them. They mock both God and they mock those that they come into contact with. And this can be the hardest part for us, is it not? It's hard enough to look at the world around you and see the wicked succeeding. But how much harder is it when you have an ungodly manager who yells at you and mocks you and mistreats you? And yet she is favored and she gets promoted. How much harder is it when there's a kid at school who mistreats you but receives no consequences for his bullying? And maybe even seems to be rewarded for his behavior. Maybe his family is even wealthier than yours, so you have to watch him receive and enjoy all the things that you want. How much harder is it to endure unjust treatment because of the country you come from or the color of your skin? When those who are mistreating you seem to have a life of ease and comfort, 
when there are seemingly no consequences for their pride, for their mocking, for their mistreatment? Maybe it makes you wonder, is God good? Does he care? Is it worth it to follow him? The sad reality of it all is that many of people, God's people are led astray when these witness these things. Let's look at verse 10. Because of all this, his people, God's people, turn to them, the wicked, and drink in their overflowing words. They conclude, if you cannot beat them, join them. And so they follow their example. They look to those that they envy for advice and, and counsel. They drink in the words of celebrities and social media influencers and the successful and the rich and the powerful, even if those people give no evidence of a godly life. It seems better to them to follow those who have an easy life than it does to follow the Lord. Look at verse 11. The conclusion of the wicked is that God must not be all-knowing and all-powerful. That is the perception of the wicked. They're living wicked and ungodly lives, free from the commands of God. They're full of pride. They mistreat others. And yet, they're prospering. Things are going good. They're living lives of ease and comfort. They're successful. They think they have everything that they have ever wanted. And therefore, they conclude that God must not see what they're doing. Or if he does, he must be powerless to stop it. Maybe they conclude that God does not even exist at all. This is the same thing that Asaph was tempted to conclude. We see his perception of the world in verse 12. The wicked, the proud, the arrogant, the ungodly, they are always at ease. That's what the world looks like to him. The wicked and the ungodly are always at ease. And so in verse 13, he wonders, why have I bothered? Follow the Lord. Why have I bothered to obey him? What has he done for me anyway? And he notes in verse 14 that in contrast to the wicked, his life seems full of affliction and suffering. The wicked live a life of ease and he is living a life of difficulty. Is it worth it to follow God? Is he really good? Friends, again, maybe you can relate. You think, I've done everything right, God. Why is my life so hard? I've tried hard to follow you. Why do I have so many difficulties while others have it so easy? Maybe you wondered if you have followed God and pursued righteousness and holiness in vain. However, the questions that these first 14 verses leave you with is this. Is your perception of the world accurate? Have you really understood things correctly? Well, it's undoubtedly true that there are many arrogant, ungodly, and wicked people who do prosper in this life. It is true that there are many who love the Lord and follow after him who suffer. So Asaph's perception was not wholly wrong. It's not universally true, but it's not wholly wrong. But as we will see, it was incomplete. He had only an earthly perspective. Asaph needed a heavenly perspective. He only considered that which could be seen. But Asaph ignored the far more important things that he could not see. 
That takes us to the second point of the sermon, reality. Look with me starting in verse 15 of Psalm 73. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. Well, notice first in verse 15, one of the things that helped Asaph from going astray. He held back from speaking his doubts out loud because he knew as one of the song leaders of Israel, he would have led others astray. He knew that to abandon the Lord was to abandon and betray the, the people of the Lord. The community of faith gave him pause, made him rethink his perception, calmed his emotions. And brothers and sisters, what a blessing the people of God are. What a gift the church is to you in your walk with the Lord. We need the help of one another in the Christian life. Our perception of the world is tainted by sin. We are tempted in many ways to, to go astray. Brothers and sisters, we gather together to hear God's word and to be reminded of what is true. We fellowship with one another to share our struggles and our doubts and encourage one another in the faith. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that God has given you fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the reasons that he commands that Christians gather together in local churches is so that you can share your doubts and encourage one another in the faith. It's to keep you from stumbling and it's to keep you from going astray. Just personally in my life, my friends who have abandoned the faith, those of I have known, most often they have not been connected to a church. They thought that they could live the Christian life alone and in the end, they've ended up going astray. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling like Asaph, the fact that you are here is a sign that you have not fully gone astray. You're seeking to gather with God's people. You want to be reminded of what you have heard and know is true. The community of faith is acting as a protection to you. And we see in verses 16 and 17 that though Asaph still did not understand, though he still could not make sense of the world around him, though he still felt hopeless, he took his concerns to the Lord. He entered God's sanctuary. He turned to God in worship and prayer. And though he still did not understand, he took his hopelessness and he took his despair to the Lord. And church, that is what you should do too when you feel hopeless, when you feel despair. It's what you should do when you do not understand the world around you and when you're tempted to give up. Go to the Lord. Take your doubts and your concerns to Him in prayer. Open His, open His Word and be reminded of the reality of the situation, the eternal truths that God has revealed to us in His Word. Do not neglect gathering together with the church to worship and to be encouraged by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Share your struggles. Well, as Asaph went into God's sanctuary, he was reminded of the reality of the situation. God, in his grace, helped Asaph to perceive the reality of, the situ of his situation. 
He helped him realize that his perception of the world around him was incomplete. It was not wholly accurate. Yes, the arrogant and wicked often prosper in this life, and the faithful suffer, but what did Asaph come to understand? He came to understand the end of the wicked. He came to understand their eternal destiny. His eyes were, were opened to understand not just earthly realities, but spiritual realities. As we see in verse 18, he came to understand that God set the wicked in slippery places, and he makes them fall to ruin. They will fall to ruin. They will become a, a desolation. They will be swept away by terrors. Well, commenting on verse 18, the uh, uh, famous English pastor Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He, Asaph, sees that the divine hand purposely placed these men in prosperous and imminent circumstances, not with the intent to bless them, but the very reverse. Their position was dangerous, and therefore God did not set his friends there, but his foes alone. He chose an infinite love, a rougher but safer standing for his own beloved. Did you catch that? Spurgeon said that the prosperity of the wicked was not a blessing. It was a curse. And why? Because it led them to believe that God did not see and that he did not know or he would never do anything about their behavior. It led them to pride. It led them to continue in their wickedness. And it led them away from the Lord. Church, it is a grave mistake to believe that prosperity and a life of ease is a sign that you are doing everything right. It's not a sign that you're doing everything wrong necessarily either, but it's a grave mistake to think it is a sure sign of the Lord's favor. The Lord sometimes chooses to richly bless his people financially, with lives of ease, in other ways. Some Christians have lives that are relatively free from trouble. There is nothing wrong with that. However, prosperity is not a sure sign of the Lord's blessing. There is a great danger to riches. They often lead to self-reliance. When people are comfortable in this life, they often think they have no need of God. Let's go read Deuteronomy chapter 8. Friends, that is a slippery place to be indeed. Do not be envious of the wicked. Perhaps you need to see the reality that your afflictions and your difficulties, brothers and sisters, maybe even your poverty or God's kindness to you, helping to you to see your need of him, helping to point you to a daily reliance on him, that you truly need to pray to the Lord, give me this day my daily bread because I don't know where it's coming from apart from your hand. Friends, I don't know the situation of each of your lives. Some of you may be here and have fairly comfortable lives, free from trouble and affliction. And maybe you don't see a whole lot of need for God. Maybe life has gone pretty well for you and you've been able to live life on your own, own terms with no consequence. You paid little attention to God's commands and so you've concluded that God just really doesn't see or he just really doesn't care that much. and He's not really that interested in how you live your life. Maybe you've concluded that there is no need to follow him. 
But friends, if that is you, I urge you to see that you are in a slippery place. On the other hand, maybe you're here and life has not been easy for you. Maybe it's been full of trouble. Therefore, maybe you, like Salieri, have grown angry and bitter towards God. That you've abandoned him, or you're at least tempted to abandon him. You've concluded it's really not worth it to follow him. I mean, what has he done for me? If that is you, recognize that God, that you are in a slippery place as well. It may seem like God does not see. It may seem like God does not care. It may seem like God does not know. It may seem like he is sleeping. But he is not. Look at verse 20. To those who think that the Lord is sleeping, there will come a day when it seems like he has woken from his sleep. There will be a day that it seems like he has woken from his sleep, and that is the day that he comes in terrifying judgment. One day God will certainly judge those who have rejected him. He will judge all those who have concluded that he does not see, that he does not care, that he does not know, and he will send them to their eternal destruction. Friends, you may face little to no consequence for your sin in this life, or at least little consequence that you perceive. But be assured, God will not be mocked. Judgment is coming. His justice will stand. And friends, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has provided a way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself did not have an easy time on earth. His was the road of suffering, his was the road of difficulty and rejection. He was rejected by his own people. He was mocked and insulted and ultimately crucified by those who in their pride saw him as not worthy of them. Who rejected him as the Messiah in their pride. They mocked him and they put him to death on a cross. People looked at him and concluded that he could not be the Messiah. He could not be worth following. But appearances could be deceiving. Because Jesus is, the God, is God who took on human flesh, one with the Father, the King of glory, the one worthy of all honor and praise from now and forevermore. Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life, a life free from wickedness, the life that you could not live. Brothers and sisters, we have all lived wicked lives. We are all to be identified with the wicked. But on the cross, Jesus died the death that you deserve to die for your wickedness and your sin. Therefore, all who repent and place their faith in him can be forgiven from their wickedness. They can be forgiven of their sin. And because Jesus rose from the dead three days later, they can have eternal life in him forever. You can have eternal life in his presence rather than being swept away in the judgment that is assuredly coming. So brothers and sisters, or I should say friends, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, let me urge you to see reality for what it is and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save you from the wrath to come. And he is the only sure rock on which you can stand. Because when Asaph went into the sanctuary of the Lord, it brought him perspective. Perspective that the life of the wicked was not as good as it appeared. But he also gained perspective on his own life and the, the blessings of life with the Lord. And that brings us to the, the third point, perspective. Well, look with me starting in verse 21. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, 
I was stupid and did not understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up into glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Brothers and sisters, as Asaph gained perspective, well, the first thing that he did was repent. Look at verse 21. He recognized that it was his envy of the wicked and the bitterness that had grown in his heart. It was his sin that had clouded his perspective on life. The reason that he did not understand at first and it had become an unthinking animal toward God was because the bitterness of his own heart. It was his own sin that had led him to despair. And brothers and sisters, if you harbor sin in your heart, whether it is envy or bitterness or anger or any other thing, it will twist your perspective on the world around you. Your perspective of your own life, your perspective of your relationship with God, your perspective on who God is will be twisted and warped, marred. This is why it is so important to continually renew your mind by turning to God's word and to prayer. When Asaph went into the sanctuary, his outlook was transformed. So the first thing he did was he confessed his sins to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, confession is always the first step towards a restored relationship with the Lord. It brings restoration, a renewal of fellowship, and reconciliation. But confession is also the key to releasing the bitterness and envy of your heart. Well, these final few verses of the psalm made it clear that Asaph's whole attitude had changed. The envy that had marked him previously was gone. But notice this. Notice Asaph gives no indication that his circumstances have changed in any way. I think he was still afflicted. I think life was still not easy for Asaph. I think when he looked around him, he saw the wicked going right on prospering in this world. Nothing in his earth, earthly circumstances changed. And yet, his entire attitude had gone from one of doubt and envy to one of hope and joy. Well, what changed? What made the difference for Asaph? Friends, what changed was the desires of his heart. What changed is what he wanted. Notice over and over again in these final verses, Asaph rejoices over God's presence with him. Verses 23 and 24, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. God is with him now, and he will be with God for all eternity. Verse 25, who do I have in heaven but you, and I desire nothing on earth but you. Verse 26, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28, God's presence is my good. Asaph was rejoicing in the fact that God was with him. To go back to Charles Spurgeon, he writes this about verse 25. 
Thus then he, Asaph, turns away from the glitter which fascinated him to the true gold which was his real treasure. He felt that his God was better to him than all the wealth, health, honor, and peace which he had so much envied in the wicked. Yes, he was not only better than all on earth, but more excellent than all in heaven. He bade all things else go, that he might be filled with his God. No longer should his wishes ramble, no other object should tempt them to stray. Henceforth, the ever-living one should be his all in all. Brothers and sisters, Asaph found his satisfaction in the Lord. He came to truly believe that God was indeed good to his people because God had given himself to his people. Church, the sure sign that God has been good to you is that God has given himself to you. He gave you his son to die for you. He has given you his spirit to dwell within you. You have continual access to him through prayer because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God speaks to you through his word. He has left the full revelation of himself to you that you can turn to any time, day or night, that you want. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Think about it. We all know that the number one desire of any child is the presence and love of their parents. They want the joy of the, their presence of their mom and dad far more than they want any toy or gift their parent might provide. They want the daily experience of their, their love and care. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true or should be true for the Christian. There is no greater good and no higher joy than having God with you. There's nothing or no one else that, that you need. Church, it is God himself. It is God himself and God alone who is to be your highest good, who is your highest good. He is the reward of the Christian life. He alone can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. In him alone is to be found true joy and peace and security. I mean, have you, have you ever wondered how David could write these words in Psalm 37, 4? Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Does that mean, Dave, like, God's just going to give you whatever you want if you, like, delight in the Lord? Is that what David writing about? Is that what he means? No, David does not mean that God gives anything and everything to those who follow him. What David means is the one who delights in the Lord does get their heart's desire because the one who delights in the Lord finds their heart's desire in him. God is his good, his joy, his desire, and God gives himself to all who come to him in repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself envious of the lives of others, if you find yourself constantly complaining about your circumstances, if you doubt the Lord's goodness, if you feel as if your feet are about to slip and are about to go to stray, if those things are true about you, it is very likely that you have set your heart's desire on something other than the Lord. You have set your heart's desire on the wrong thing. You have set your heart's desire on something here on earth, whether it's money, a reputation, success, or anything else. You are, like a, you are like a child who actually does just want the toys and gifts and not the joy of their parents' presence. You want God, what God can give you more than you want God himself. 
Maybe that's the reason that you're following him. And maybe that's the reason that you come to church week after week, because you think if you do those things, you'll get something from God. You want what he can give you more than the joy of his presence. Well, friends, if that is you, take your instruction from Asaph. Go into God's sanctuary. Turn to his word and renew your mind. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your discontentment. Confess your envy. Ask God to help you delight in him alone. Ask God to change the desires of your heart. Now, friends, if you are a Christian, doing these things will bring you joy. And notice in verses 23 and 24 that right after Asaph had confessed his sin to the Lord, he rejoices that God has not abandoned him. God does not abandon his children in their sin. He rejoices that God is still with him, holding his right hand. And more than that, that God will never let him go. He rejoices that after this life, God will take him up to be with him to glory. And in heaven, he will experience the fullness of God's presence and therefore the fullness of joy evermore. But church, what is it that Asaph deserved? Church, what is it that you deserve? We see it in verse 27. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Church, what we all deserve is to be destroyed right along with the unfaithful. Because we have all been unfaithful to God. We have all been wicked. We all deserve to be banished from his presence, the presence of his love and care for all eternity. But God in his great love and in his great grace sent Jesus Christ to die for you. Jesus was faithful in every way. He was faithful where you were not. And he perished in your place on the cross that you might be forgiven. All who are far from God will certainly perish. But God promises to draw near to those who draw near to him in repentance and faith. He gives his spirit to dwell with them continually and he will never cast them off. And they will dwell with him for all eternity. The church, let those gospel truths reshape your perspective on your life and your circumstances. Adopt a heavenly perspective. See reality for what it is. God has indeed been good to you. And it is worth it to follow him. Let's pray.